This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Somebody once described art to me as a bouquet of complexity. If you're just doing one thing, it's not as interesting to me. What I liked about Pryor is he would let go of the laugh and go into something that was sad and then ultimately funny, but it was sad. And so that's always where I wanted to go. I think it's that valley where you're going from peak into yeah. the valley to another peak. But that's what life is. What do you mean that's what life is? You're always sad at some point in life. And there are entertainers that go on. It is just about the jokes. It is a disembodied experience for me. And some of them make it an art form. They do it really well and I can enjoy it for a bit. It's just not my voice. My voice has got to acknowledge the fucking loneliness and sadness associated with the reason I had to get the comedy in the first place. <laughs> Producing an experience that is worth having. And yeah. I think that's where you start to border from, let's say, comedy or anything into artistry. Because yeah. you're creating an experience with the audience. Yeah. And that is unique and individual. It's like a canvas you're painting on. And yeah. so what does that mean? Because that's going to be unique to every audience. So I'm so excited to have Dove Davidoff, yes. comedian, actor, author of the book Road Dog, Life and Reflections from the Road as a Stand-Up Comic. Dove, you're also on the show Shades of Blue. Yeah. You're on HBO's Crashing. Yeah. You do real estate. You've been all you've been all over the world as stand-up. I want to describe one story from the first evening we met. Uh, we went up to Gotham Comedy Club together. Yes. And Seinfeld had performed right before you. He was the gu right. guy on right before you. I mean, we, I, we even saw him leave with like his bodyguards. And then you had to yeah. go on. Sure. So my first question is, knowing that Steinfeld had just gone on and the audience in their heads, they're just, all they're thinking is, I just saw Jerry Seinfeld. I just saw Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. How do you kind of like go in as a performer Separate it. and break their mental break or emotional thing. connection with what they just saw? Yeah, if you're a musician and you're following Michael Jackson, that kind of thing, the, um, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't experience it as that hard. You just try to acknowledge whatever's going on and let it dissipate or organically. That energy that, that just, was brought into the room. It's not that he's so funny that it's challenging to follow him. They're trying to get around their idea. He's an icon. He's an icon. You know, that kind of thing. Right. They, they're having a New York experience. They're having a New York it, experience. Rather than like necessarily. It's an emotional lingering thing, you know, and it's, uh, it's almost like seeing something. It's like there's an elephant in the room. You just acknowledge the elephant and then you make sure you have your own energy. You don't jump up and try to do material into the wake the wake is that thing behind the boat. And if you if you just if you follow that boat too closely, so to speak, you're gonna just travel in whatever kind of rut it's left behind it. Uh, I don't know if I'm describing this well, but if no, you but, separate but, the moment, give it a little bit of time and space, and then bring your own energy and thing, the rest of it, um, it'll follow. They'll come around. You know? Yeah, well, I, I think I think the first thing you said was really important which is that you have to, you, you said you just have to, I don't think it's that simple for people to right, realize. Right, it's not that simple. You, you, have, you have to acknowledge that Seinfeld was there. Yes. And you did that in, in the first few minutes of your yes. act. You were like, 
oh, did Seinfeld, mm. you had, there was some kind of a musical stand. It's like a music stand. And like, yeah. did, did Seinfeld put his notes here his and you jokes, like move yeah. the stand to the side, like almost like physically removing yes, his right. presence yes. from the stage. Yes. So I don't know if that's like instinctive or planned or you're. That's instinctive. You, you work with the tools in front of you. Whatever is there. If he had a stool there, it's a, did he sit here and it moved the stool? We're, we're getting out of the way. Let's, let's, let's all move on with our lives now. And you're going to see something just as funny, but different. And 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 then you you start off with like a, I wouldn't even call them like standard stand up comedy jokes. You just had a lot of energy yeah. addressing you know current events in a funny way. Yeah. And then you switch to more kind of standard right. jokes. You had some Donald Trump stuff. You had, yeah, yeah, you had, had jokes then. Yeah, but that was by, probably by then the Seinfeld. Uh, Everybody's settled. That energy dissipates. It's like when the music changes. If you're watching, I don't know. I, I guess if you were watching a band and then another band comes on, there's usually the reason I think an MC has traditionally been a part of a show is that it creates a a, a before and after, a, a sort of an interstitial. Is that is yeah. that a word? Um, it's like if even if there's a good act, regardless of whether or not Seinfeld or anybody else, if there's somebody who was really funny and you you feel that rhythm in the room. Some people don't even like to watch any other comics that have a specific type of rhythm. You can watch how other com there are comedians who will adopt that rhythm too closely. There were a bunch of Richard Pryor clones. Um, and there've been clones of lots of people, but I mean, um, if, if you can, you got to maintain your own voice. And oftentimes if an MC brings me up right away after a middle act, if I'm headlining on the road, um, if the middle act is done really well, I won't just jump up and try to do jokes because it's a different kind of music, you know? So if we just all acknowledge that there's something that the music, so to speak, is changing, um, then we can relax into whatever the new voice is, provided that the new voice then comes and brings it. I won't hang around just chit-chatting because then the crowd's going to drift. People are going to begin talking to one another. I'll do something that will galvanize or draw their attention. And then... Once people have settled in a bit, I'll do something that is funny. Ideally, it's spontaneous. If it's a joke, that's okay too. Um, so let's say let's say you're 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 on the road, and and uh, uh, we're gonna get into a lot of topics, but this this yeah. one particular because of the Seinfeld thing um, intrigued me. Um, let's say you're on the road. The the you're the headliner. The guy right before you kills it. Like he's just hilariously yeah. funny. Right. Great jokes. Right. How's you in? And you like the fact that the energy of the crowd is high, but you still yeah. want to bring your own. You don't want to just um, live off of the energy of the last comic. No, you want no. To bring your own. So what would you? Yeah. What would you be thinking as you're approaching the stage? What would you? What would I would you do? use something, whatever is in front of me, to separate that there was a thing that just happened that you guys all experienced, and now that thing is changing. Mm. So I might even just get up. Sometimes there's a musical interlude when you go and work the Village Underground. The comedy cellar. There's a they're really good musicians that play the acts up, and then there's a point during the show where they just play music for a, a couple of minutes, and the music's really good and it's catchy. And then if you have to get up and follow that right away, just acknowledge the idea. Like sometimes I'll just say I'd rather be listening to that music right now than having to do stand up. And people laugh because there's a certain tension there. There are a couple of giggles. There's a little bit of tension. But then it dissipates and it creates space between the music and the rhythm that everybody was experiencing and what it's going to transition into. And without that, you're just trying to match the energy of a thing that existed before you. And it never works for whoever's on. 
you know, it's it's like it's and especially doesn't work. It, there are people for whom it might work if it's a really high energy act that's really physical. But if you have your own kind of voice, you you need to separate what they just experience, whether it's a musical act and I've followed bands or it's Seinfeld or just another funny dude. Well, okay, now let's let's take it to another thing. You know, when you yeah. say you're auditioning for a part in a TV show or a sure, movie, yeah. um, you want to break the energy of whatever happened between the guy who auditioned right before you and you. How it's do you already kind of broken in that scenario. The door is closed. They know someone else is coming in. It's not an audience that's really operating on some emotional level. You might walk in, say hi, you know, um, there's usually some introductory kind of thing that goes on when you walk in. That's done for you for the most part. The stage can be tricky because you have to have the confidence to let that energy go. You, you almost have to throw a wet blanket on it. You know, they're all... They're, what sometimes, do you mean? Like, how do you do that? Well, for instance, the MC will go, hey, yeah, and they're whipping the crowd into a frenzy and the music is up and then you jump up. My voice is to start out slow. I, I want to bring people down so that we can go up from there. I don't want to start up so that I have to match some inorganic pitch. That's interesting because most, I would, I, I, you can't say most, but yeah. a lot of comics take the reverse approach where yeah. they just go out and say, you know, yeah, everybody, yeah. keep it up. Uh, yeah, you know, they want the energy to keep going. Yeah, I don't. And and and. Um, Although you are a high energy comic. I will get into energy, but it's got to be organic. I'm not going to try to match. Oftentimes, like Artie, he's a he's a black MC. He, he comes from those rooms. Artie Fuqua. Artie Fuqua. He'll come up and he does it, he's a lot of energy up front. And that's fine. It's good for the crowd, but it doesn't help me. And so I, I it helps bring the show together and get the crowd back involved. But then it's my job to sort of, it's almost like, um, I've said this before. I've heard Chris Rock say it. I had never heard him say it before I said it, but I just said, lower your expectations initially. Um, because you, you can't match that. There's no, we haven't, we haven't gotten to know one another yet in the crowd, right? The audience is there and a few of them may know me, but a lot of them don't. And even if they did, like, I'm going to start out by, at some point, I want to talk to people. I don't want to match energy. And, um, and so you just got to create space so that you can have your own experience you know and it's uh, otherwise it doesn't serve what i'm trying to do it does just doesn't work to jump on for me there are maybe there are people that do but usually i find it's not i've followed everybody you know whether it's chris rock or seinfeld or, I, I i don't think twice about it. it doesn't bother me to follow anybody in the world but well i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you i'm gonna ask you more about this but i wanna i wanna get to the book i we've known each other somewhat for for a while and and but I learned about you from uh, a lot about you in the book. You grew up mm. uh, in a your parents, I guess, divorced early on. I'll or, explain it real quick. Yeah, my father was an uneducated Jewish business guy from the Bronx. My mother was a uh, hippie wasp analyst kind of intellectual from uh, California. So, so totally different. Yeah, polar opposites. And she was on her way to India to teach piano when she stopped off to meet her friend, who was this uh, lesbian woman who owned a monkey. And they were she the, owned a monkey. Yeah, monkey. So the monkey owner was renting this shitty little house for my father in in, in a rural part of Jersey. Um, anyway, that's how they met. And, oh, and my mother was wrapped up on a commune, and my father ran a, a junkyard. Right. So you kind of half grew up like on a junkyard. And no, no, ninety five percent on a junkyard, and then five percent as 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 
as a relative part of my mother's cult. I would go to the place where they built earth-integrated housing. My mother spent a lot of her money on freeze-dried food, awaiting the inevitable nuclear apocalypse. Um, and so the hard part probably wouldn't even have been the cult life. That makes sense if you're in it. If you're in it and you believe that shit, and everybody else you know is in it and believes that stuff, you can ride with that for a while. The problem was the dissonance. The problem was growing up around oftentimes violent working class kids in Jersey in a junkyard. I don't exaggerate when I say like, I, that junkyard isn't a euphemism. It was a literal I, junkyard. I, I feel like it, the only example of a junkyard I could think of, of course, is Sanford and Son, the TV show yeah. from the 70s. Yeah. The junkyard. Right. What does it even mean? Like, what is a, a few acres <laughs> of crushed cars, metal parts. You'd be in the metal shipping business. You'd clean radiators to get the the uh, the. You'd try to get as much aluminum as you could because aluminum was worth more than steel. And so you, I buy a car from you, or you drop it off. You got a piece of junk. You don't want it at your house. You say, "Can you come get this out of my front yard?" And I come in. And these are the demographic you work with. It's often poor people, people that work on their own motors. Um, so there's a lot of uh, w when you work. Um, Somebody once asked this Dick Gregory, I think, why um, why he cursed so much in his act, and he said because my life has been profane, and it's kind of um, it's a profane environment. It's it's um, yeah, you described all survival. the characters in the junkyard, yeah, yeah, plus kind of how the other kids were treating you as the sure. kid who grew up at a junkyard. Yes, and so it's almost like, and and you describe it in this in in the book, like comedy almost becomes this self defense mechanism. Yeah, to to sort of deal with all the situation, deal with your, your dad who was somewhat, uh, yeah, my father was gay. My father was banging guys and my, f and, but my mother knew about it and, and he didn't seem gay. And I never, I mean, gay wasn't not even, you know, in the air at that time. Like that was not okay. You know, you were not in the village. And you wouldn't expect that even though this is a stereotype, you wouldn't expect a, a kind of, um, almost gangsterish sounding yeah. junkyard owning yeah. Jewish guy right, right, right. to yeah. be, be, have that other lifestyle. Well, that's why it was also fucking odd. Two kids, also odd, yeah. That's what makes it genuinely kind of odd, you know? Everybody it, it, thinks their situation was odd. This was this was really very odd. Well, well, it gets it gets even more odd. Your your mom obviously was in this cult, but yeah. then sadly, I'm going to just bring it up. Your dad, yeah, yeah. you bring it up in the book. Your dad died of AIDS. Yes. Um when did he die of AIDS? Did he died of AIDS I was about 21. When he died, I don't know when he got it. He hid it for a long time, and then told me that um, that that uh, you know I was pressing him. He was complaining, uh, complaining about shit. You know, his back, his fucking head, or whatever. And uh, and so finally he said, "Listen, the doctor told me two years ago that I had about two years to live, but that was two years ago when he left." And then he finally, you know, he said, "I'm dying, but uh, you know, don't tell anybody. You can't tell your mother. You can't tell your brother." And um, why do you want to tell your brother? He didn't want to distract him, and I and I was. He wanted to distract you. Well, I was more confrontational about what are you complaining about all the time, you know. And my my brother was away at school. My brother was living in Rhode Island at the time. That's what it was, mm -hmm. and so I was back and forth from the East Village. I lived in the Lower East Side since I was about seventeen, and so um, yeah, yeah, it was very um strange. I don't know. I mean, how did you how did you feel once you once you heard that he had AIDS? Was that the well, it wasn't time? AIDS. He just said he was dying. He wasn't. He he didn't get into it, and I wasn't going to push. I could tell it was uncomfortable, and they weren't clear. Nobody dies of AIDS. They die of a manifestation of AIDS. So then you put the when my mother met my father, he was banging. Uh, he, he had fuck guys or something. 
and she knew it, but her big problem with him was that he ate too much sugar and, and that he was angry, you know, and she never really identified the, the not being fully heterosexual as a potential problem in the relationship, like a fucking wacko, you know, and, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was odd. And, and did, when he said he was dying, did you know he was gay? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I didn't know. And also I didn't ask, you know, my mother had mentioned something. I didn't, I, I was, I was a real, um, a sort of a street ish Jersey, you know, that point in my life, I was around a relatively rough crew. And so it's, that's not something that I would have wanted to confront. And it, and he was never open with any of that, but, but, you know, having, communicated with my mother you knew what was going on in the background and it wasn't the kind of environment of course where you could be openly gay I mean, he was the boss of it was a rough environment so and and you know once once you did fully find out and accept was it yeah before he died or was it after he died well no no it, no he he died before uh he died um I never really accepted it. I, or, or, I don't know. I mean, we could do another hour on what acceptance means, but I, I, I just understood. I just accepted the idea that I love him regardless and that he did what he did and he is who he is. And um, when, you say, when you say you love him regardless, yeah. of course, yeah. you know, if you love someone, it doesn't matter, straight, gay, whatever. But also in many ways, he was kind of emotionally abusive to you as well. Uh, at least as it's described yeah. in the book. I mean, sometimes you're saying it sort of humorously, but yeah, yeah. humor, of course, is a way of uh, telling yeah. the truth in sure, a right. odd sort of way. Yeah. Uh, you know, you would say he was always yelling at you, but that was right. his way of communicating. Right. Yeah, that's how he communicated. And and, and um, that's how his people, his parents communicated. I mean, his father, he didn't really have a mother. and um, Yeah, it, it was it was in that kind of environment, though, it never felt like abuse. You know why? Because, well, but sometimes, you know, there's Stockholm syndrome. Like sometimes the person subject to abuse um, doesn't and, recognize, right? Doesn't yeah. recognize that and even ends up loving the person abusing them. Absolutely. It's a bit, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I would compare it more like uh, Sebastian Younger wrote that book, Tribal, and he talks about PTSD rates in Israel relative to the United States. And the returning GIs in the States report PTSD symptoms at a vastly higher rate than than the people that have seen conflict, the GIs over in Israel. Uh, and they've seen more conflict as a percentage of the population. But because everybody was in the military at one point or another in Israel, um, the PTSD arguably isn't necessarily created by the bomb that goes off as much as it is by the inability to communicate your experience when you come home in that you're left alone with that experience when you return to the united states you're around a bunch of other people that probably haven't been to iraq whereas uh so yeah i mean the whole environment yelled at everybody and so i never experienced it necessarily as that what did that do on a subconscious level i i'm not aware of that certainly I now have trouble communicating with my wife because I can be overly direct and overly assertive, you know, because it's like prison, you know, I'm, when, when, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's kind of funny. Well, the idea that I'm saying, yeah, I remember this guy got stabbed in a documentary. He was stabbed over a um, can of soda. And the interviewer said, you stabbed that guy over a can of soda. And he said, it's not over the soda. If I allow him to take that from me without reprisal, He'll take something from me every day. And so um, 
when you grow up in that kind of environment that I did, I, I'm sort of, I mean, not so much now, I'm 44 years old, but, but back in the day, it could get pretty violent pretty quick because I had to let people know that, that you weren't going to take advantage of me. You know, you can either sort of retreat or you almost become a kind of, uh, not so much the aggressor. I, I, I never fucked with people. Um, I was always sensitive like that, but, um, but maybe a way you, you fought was by developing this sense of humor and this comedy. I mean, you're, you mentioned instances in school where your sense of humor just comes out. Yes. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Right. And you didn't know whether you were being sensitive or insensitive. You were just being funny and that became like this defense mechanism. Yes. And and I wonder if, I mean, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, just to use him as an example, again, he always says he didn't really have a troubled background. He had a very right. loving right. middle class family. That's right. And um, but you often hear from comedians that their their comedy really comes from this deep source of, of yeah. conflict from from it's childhood. Probably and why so on. I never connected with Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, his material. I can acknowledge that it's very funny. It's not the thing that I would probably turn on for an hour. Although I don't watch much stand up or turn it on. But when Pryor talked about growing up in a whorehouse and those experiences, for me they were much more resonant than the Seinfeld, you well, know? Well, Pryor's interesting, and I'm going to compare that to, um, so to HBO's TV show, yeah. Crashing. Yeah. So you're on Crashing. It's produced by Judd Apatow, starring mm-hmm. Pete Holmes, but you play a pretty significant role in it. Yeah. And um, uh, Pryor was kind of your, your standard run-of-the-mill I don't know what this even means, 60s comedian. And then suddenly he started- He was doing Cosby until he found himself. Right, right. and even Cosby was doing pre-Cosby Probably. until he yeah. found his voice. And uh, yeah. and and yeah, Pryor suddenly set, started telling the truth. He started dressing yeah. how he would dress and talking yeah. about the whorehouse yeah. and talking about um, the condition of, yeah. you know- black people and, yes. and 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 he became the best comedian of yeah. arguably all time yeah. and i on crashing there's this great scene which i really think is the the pivotal scene of the series where pete so you're running um a comedy club yeah, you're right. playing a comedy club owner which is right. for anyone who wants to know crashing trivia is the the grizzly pair in in um, yeah, the village right. and uh and by the way i've performed there it's yeah there club. you go yeah so uh and uh uh Pete Holmes is is sort of working for you. He's a barker. He's handing That's out right. uh, pamphlets. Hey, check out this comedy club. And in exchange, he gets a few minutes of time. That's right. And his parents come and visit one time. Right. And he tells kind of like, the show is kind of his arc as a growing comedian. And it shows him t- telling his sort of kind of plain vanilla jokes that are, okay, they're jokes. Yeah. And his his mom, his parents don't really laugh. But his mom, and then you go on and you tell the crudest, most insane yeah, right, jokes. Right, right, and of course, right. it's all scripted then, but I feel it really right. is. You're playing yourself. Like you're, I, I've seen you do stand up. I feel like that was your, your stand up. And the, the mom says, you know, Pete Holmes' mom says to him, you know, like Pete says, why did you like him? He was so crude and not right. me. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I was yeah. a while ago. Right. And um, the mom says, well, you were just telling these jokes and he's really he's really having problems <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I don't remember the exact I'm i never saw the episode yeah yeah and and he yeah. he's he's having problems and kind of showing it through his comments. right right, right. She, she had her own way of saying he's telling the truth and that's right what I like see. his I despair see. is like coming off right of him, right um which is the way i've also heard louis right. ck described as opposed to seinfeld like his despair is just sort yeah. of coming off of him yeah and that's what i really get from your comedy and so i think i think that does separate out as it's explained in crashing 
the professional from the amateur who's sort of rising up? Yeah, maybe. I, well, certainly, it, it, some people call it a voice, right? And I think what you're describing is a voice becomes integrated when you found some angle or perspective that feels organic to your to you, right? So, Louis talking about his kids, and he, he's not doing, he's not trying to parrot uh, an observational comic. If he has an observation, he'll make it funny. But like when Seinfeld, when uh, Pryor starts talking about having grown up in a, in a whorehouse. Um, yeah. You experience that as, as a, a part of, um, his real or unique perspective. Um, what am I trying to say? The idea is, um, you can have a guy that talks about their pain and growing up in the hood and whatever it was, and they can still be hack really, really hacky. It's about the way you do it. You know, there are plenty of acts. I've, I've worked, um, you know, any number of rooms, somebody that's talking about whatever it is. If it's, if it's on in the, in the hood, they call it the Chitlin circuit. Black guys will work around these, these often these black rooms. And, I've, and, um, you can tell it, sometimes there's just hacky and not hacky, even if they're being honest about what does it mean? Hacky? Cause I've, I've heard the phrase, but I want to know how you define hacky versus not hacky. Like let's take an extreme. Knock knock jokes is not told are not told by stand up comedians on the no, stage. No, <laughs> but nobody tells them, right? So that that would be beyond hack. That would be something else. Hacky is doing very derivative stuff. It's like um, there is a script. It's almost like a rapper that gets up and without putting his own spin on something, he's just like it's another line about cocaine and you know violence and like you're a fucking hack after a while if you don't do your own experience of that or put your own spin on it in some way it, every it's just so d derivative it's, but 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 look, look this is always interesting to me because this comes up in in every part of life really so let's say every part of life you, let's say yes. you're going into a yes a, a sales meeting and and yeah. i mentioned before you also do real estate you've been in obviously many business meetings yeah or any context if you're scared beforehand people often give this advice oh just be you but that's not that easy no, to do no, that doesn't no. even really mean anything be authentic that doesn't really mean anything so no. so so what do you mean and and it, and it really comes through in your comedy that somehow you are being you but what does right. that mean like how do you cultivate yeah, the, those that are voice? good questions how do you cultivate that voice just by doing it enough and then when you have enough confidence to not get a laugh, which is hard. That then, is hard. Yeah. You're going up there to get people yeah. to laugh. And often you're yeah. saying what you want, but people won't laugh. Yeah, it's the paradox. Like you got to be okay with um, failing a little bit to find a richer vein, so to speak. You know, it's like you got to, the gold, the good stuff is in really specific things that can at first be challenging to communicate. Um, the reason why Seinfeld's stuff is is good comedy is because um, I think he's taken that observational thing that he does. One, he's the first guy to really get known with that style, so to speak. He identified his own voice, and he's very good at the minutia and describing it. And that's really a lot of what he thinks about. I would imagine. I mean, I I, I don't I don't know him personally, but I know people that do. You know, it's like. Um, and so it's honest to him, you know, if I talked about that, it would be a hacky version of what he's doing. Mm. Um, 
Whereas for me, comedy was more about reconciling my strange existence. So um, I, I have to, so I would be more drawn to somebody like Louis' material or, or, you know, it's like, and also Seinfeld, you know, my childhood had more violence and more profanity and it was a much di more difficult place to be than Jerry Seinfeld's but you childhood. Know, it's funny though, because you don't, you don't, for instance, I'm sure you have a lot of great, funny stories yes. about growing up, but you don't necessarily tell those in your I don't have many. They all are so sad to me and on some level. So they're not funny. They're stories, but they're not necessarily... I mean, you tell the stories in your book. Some of them are ironic. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm trying to write more from that place, but I haven't identified many. I, I've doing, I'm doing some material now about my father and you know, the shit about couples therapy. I mean, anything can be funny if told right, but I don't have a ton of... I don't think I've ever mentioned... I, I don't have a joke about the junkyard. I don't have a joke about my grandfather. And these were deeply funny places and people, but... Why do you think, why do you think just, and again, um, in this search for authenticity, it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean take yesterday and talk about it today in a funny way. Right. Um, it, it sort of means what's going on even at a deeper level inside of yeah. you. Like right now, everything that happened to you when you were 13 at the junkyard yeah. kind of comes out in this, um, you know, this happens in the book and I've also seen it in your standup, let's say in this kind of weird, uh, I don't want to say, use the word anger, but like you have a lot of uh, yeah. tension with your wife. Oh and yeah, I, I yeah. remember seeing you doing stand up. You're like trashing her on stage, and she's yeah. just standing right there, yeah. laughing like she realizes it's a joke. It's a well, comedy it's fucking club. true. Yeah, you know, and and I don't think of it as trashing. I think of it as telling the truth, and that truth may may or may not be a little bit challenging to hear. But if I'm being honest, then 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 that's the truth. And whether what happens after that, you know, the other person's going to have to live with. I mean, I'm not going to set out to embarrass anybody, but if it's the kind of truth that is genuinely funny, I mean, like that's the bar in all this shit, right? So you can't talk about rape, you can't talk about this, you can't, uh, you know, talk about race from the perspective of, you know, it's like you can talk about anything. You can talk about anything if you can make it funny, and if you can make it funny, it means when I say funny, if it's thoughtful. You, if you're approaching it from a number of angles, if I want to make fun of black culture, I'm not really allowed to do that unless I approach it from a, more of a 360 type of perspective. You know, it's like if it's clear that I'm not looking to attack somebody, then I can, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not looking to impugn somebody's character, then I can talk about my experiences whether or not they may be a bit, a bit, uh, I don't know, difficult to hear or, or, or something like that. When I talk about my mother, I call it right war, wrong battle. The idea that she married this guy who was fucking guys in this strange environment, but her problem with my father was that he ate too much sugar. It's a paradox that though it may be painful for her to hear on some level, it, I, I can't not talk about it. Right, because it seems like... It's fucking crazy. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast.
Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. You make jokes about what bothers you. And so that bothers you that there's this dissonance between the reality and how she approached it. And my guess is you've, you've probably tried to confront her on it at some point and there's been some kind of either denial or whatever. Oh, no, no, there hasn't been a denial. And I have confronted her and she laughs at it because it's her truth. And, um, I had a therapist that said, listen, you guys are never going to, you see the world so differently. You must alter your expectation or you're always going to be met with some sadness or or disconnect. Right. So you alter your expectation of how your mother could, could think and feel that you're able to take it out on stage. This is what bothers you. And I see the same thing that you do with your wife, both in the book and on the stage. It's a reconciliation. It's a cathartic. Right. Like you're kind of bringing together how, how, what you think is rational with what they are doing as irrational, yes. but you can't explain it to them. Yes. And you and you make a joke out of it. Yeah, and the audience agrees with me. They're both irrational. <laughs> but but I yeah. would say watching you is that um is that maybe you're angrier than you think you are. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, like like maybe. You know, cuz cuz you yeah. know obviously nobody knows what what is going on between the sheets no matter yeah. what you read in a book or what right. I hear from you guys, but uh it's not always the case that she's no, I got this mental problem. No, it's and- not. And I'm, I'm in this fucking couples therapy. That part is that, that's where some of my best recent material has come from. All of these iMessage stuff, the the interpersonal kind of styles we lapse into, and are, it's so challenging to to get out of them or to see them from the inside. And um, yeah, and I'm learning to access more of the the sadness and the fear that I have associated with. Um, my own core insecurities like you learn growing up in the environment i did you learn to mask them really really well it's a lot like jail (laughs) you know you don't you can't show that you feel things because that will be taken advantage of and so through i'm learning to show more of that and i have to because i if i don't my the art form won't evolve and that would be very sad what do you mean the art form won't evolve uh, it, it, because to bring the whole truth, you have to be able to explore your own fragility, your own sadness, your own. Um, otherwise, then otherwise you're just an entertainer. You're just a guy that can go up and make people laugh. But that's never what I wanted to do, you know. Um, like that's, yeah. It's like um, if you can get into your own sadness and vulnerability. Especially for me, that because it's a hard place to go. If your reflexive thing is to, Dan Adam is one of my favorite comedians. If your reflexive thing is to talk about your fragility, if that's what you're comfortable talking about, you know, Woody Allen makes fun of himself. It's that whole, you know, um, nebbishy kind of. But for me, it's challenging because I wasn't not like that at all. So for me to to communicate a kind of vulnerability is. Um, it makes it more whole. It makes it more human. Somebody once described art to me as a bouquet of complexity. And, um, you know, if you're just doing one thing, it's not as interesting to me. But if it's complex, what I liked about Pryor is he would let go of the laugh and go into something that was sad and then ultimately funny, but it was sad. Um, and, you know, and so that that's always where I wanted to go. I, I think I think it's that it's that valley where you're going from peak 
into yeah. the valley to another peak. But that's what life is. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, okay. What do you mean that's what life is? Well, because you're always sad at some point in life. And then, the, I mean, those highs and lows, whereas a real, there are entertainers that go on. It is just about the jokes. It is a disembodied experience for me. And some of them make it an art form and it's really, they do it really well and I can enjoy it for a bit. It's just not my voice. My voice has got to acknowledge the fucking loneliness and sadness associated with the reason I had to get into comedy in the first place. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you, you do, you write from where you write from. Like you try to identify some, um, whatever your soul, whatever the fuck that word means, you know, has got to, um, otherwise how do you create art you know i mean you, you, you're trying to that like like uh yeah i i don't know i yeah that's 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 the thing and and i think again that that otherwise uh, you're doing it for money and that's okay too you know but um there's got to be something something else you know i i used to work on wall street when i was 20 years old if i wanted to just do something for money there's a much cleaner path to money than stand-up comedy yeah, that, that that's definitely for sure. Yeah. Um. And but but you have actually kind of you know taken stand up comedy and as you should explore yeah. all the outlets of where it could take you. So for instance, yes, you're a regular on Shades of Blue. Yeah, so I play on a drama, which is very rare for a comedian to be able to 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 book a part on a prime time drama, a real drama with with uh, you know movie stars and all all that with Jennifer and, and Ray Liotta and those guys like. The, there are lots of people that on Broadway I had to beat out lots of guys from The Sopranos, lots of Broadway people. It's like, um, and how do you, how do you, how did you beat them out? Like I, I was just they just wanted me in the audition. Yeah, but I'm good at it because I'm, I'm good at acting. What, what's the skill of acting? I don't know. I don't know what there the is skill, a skill is. There. Oh, there's absolutely a skill. Most of it is you have to listen. I mean, if you want to do it well, you have to know why you're talking, what you want from the other person. And then you have to listen intently because that will determine whether or not you're plastic or not. If you're really listening and really feeling as opposed to trying to hit some punchline or doing your own idea of how that character would look in that way, in that scene, it's just gonna, not going to sell. You're not going to sell it. It's the one thing the human animal really is good at is, is sort of picking up on what is genuine, what isn't. So if something's a bad performance, people can feel that. Uh, you know, and it's like, so good acting is, uh, I don't know, it's a fucking broad, broad question. You know, James Lipton, what, what would he say? You know, the actor studio guy, yeah. that fucking, that puff, whatever he is. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just hard. The, what I like that I, I had done is that um, if you're not really famous as a stand-up, it's particularly challenging to go and get a dramatic part on a, in, a, in a movie or a television show um, because a lot of stand-ups just aren't very good at it. But the ones that are, I think, have real trouble with the crossover, you know. There aren't many examples, I don't think, right? Where, well, I'm thinking... Um, who's done well, well, Jerry Seinfeld and Seinfeld and Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. But they're playing in comedy. Right. Okay, so let's say Dan Soder and Billions. Yeah, that's not a real drama. You have to be more st substantial role. Um, you, you, you'll, you'll find there aren't many. There's improv guys like Steve Carroll. Movie star before they gave him anything serious. If you have to be really famous before you got the serious thing, it doesn't mean you're not good. You can be brilliant. Steve Carell's brilliant at, at at drama, but you didn't go in and win the part when you weren't. Right. You know what I mean? Like Jim Carrey's done drama, <clears throat> but he was Jim Carrey before anybody let him near 
a, uh, a drama- in a dramatic scenario. You know? I guess I wouldn't know, though, who was a dramatic actor. If they, if they started off as a dramatic actor, but they were a stand-up right before then, I wouldn't know because I would know them as a dramatic actor. Or or you would have heard that some stand-up, like Judah Friedlander's had a couple of parts. Like sometimes yeah. you hear that they were stand-ups and then they were doing this other thing that wasn't comedic, you know? Like, um, ooh, the guy that was a stand-up in... Um, and uh, he plays a cop, you know, on CS, like Belzer, somebody like oh, that. Yeah, Every yeah. now and then right. there are, you know, it's just, anyway, it's, I don't know that it's an important point as much as it is. I like to explore other things. My dream has never been just, you know, 100% um, stand up, any one thing. I mean, stand up is the thing that is more self deterministic. So in, in the entertainment business, the idea of doing something as an actor is you're a part of a number of pieces. You're a cog, so to speak, uh, and you, the only thing you have control over is your performance. If you're an auteur, and like Louis, if you're going to write it and shoot it and perform it, that's more attractive to me. But I don't love writing things, and I, and I'm not. I don't have that kind of talent where I want to, you know, work on screenplays and really break stories. And I've done my own show several times. I mean, I've had development deals and I've worked with really, real quality, well-known showrunners. But um, I don't. Uh, I don't love. Um, I, you know, I like acting and I like stand up because it's more self deterministic. But the process in Los Angeles of going out, developing an idea, pitching that idea to a network executive, then the network executive tells you whether or not they're going to buy your pitch, meaning they'll pay you to write that thing. So now you get X amount of money to write it if your pitch was successful, and then. Uh, they they give you notes and then you rewrite it and then that process goes on for sometimes six months sometimes more and then they'll determine whether or not they want to shoot the script that they've bought uh, if they don't it's gone at that point and if they do then you shoot a pilot then you wait for that pilot for the network to determine whether or not they want to pick it up and then if they pick up that pilot meaning they'll order an episode order they'll order 8, 10, 12 episodes then if they order it, um, the chances are you're not going to make it to the second season. I don't care about those odds. I believe in myself. I'm not worried about the odds. I just know that unless you love that process, the likelihood of that show becoming successful is so thin. And then even if it does become successful, the likelihood that it had, you know, that they couldn't have replaced almost any actor is, you know, they replace people all the time. And you don't... You don't have control over any of this. Whereas a stand-up, you do. It's just you. It's, it's your voice. I wrote everything that I said. You know, I, I performed it. I wrote it. I, you know, St- stand-up seems like such a pure art form in the it sense is. that you're on there on the stage. You're sort of naked on the stage. That's there, it. And it's the purest. Th- and it's and it's visceral in that people are either going to laugh or they're not. They're not going to kind of like. Uh, there's no cut. There's no edit. There's no we're going to do this again. And there's no listening politely and then telling you later. Nobody oh, gives you were a good. fuck. Yeah. Nobody gives a fuck. No. Yeah. So 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 it seems like a, a real pure art form in that sense, and an it incredibly is. difficult skill to to build up. Like how, yeah. how long have you been doing it? Oh, a long time. The first time I did, it, I was 21 and 44. So the, I, for 23 years, though, less diligently early on. I mean, I was on a TV show in Los Angeles early on, and. Uh, I was doing a show with Jeff Goldblum, and um, I played a cop again. And then um, you play cops a lot. A cop or a criminal or somebody from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if you want somebody that seems like, you know, they run a 
sort of the sales side of a you know high-end golfing resort or something you know it's not gonna be me you're gonna choose so yeah but it's um yeah it's uh i don't know i mean although the cop i play on shades of blue he's like at least he was he was a road scholar then then got back into being a cop for this other reason so i got to play with the he's a smart guy but yeah it it, it um well let's how did you get involved with uh crashing because cr- crashing's pr- produced by judd apatow and yeah. who's who's basically one of the the best kind yeah. of comic artist creatives out there yeah judd has really identified his voice he's that voice he's that guy although it seems like he's t- he has a, he's his voice is expanding like crashing's different than the 40 year old virgin you know, he not has really this whole kind no. of no you don't think fundamentally no it's uh, it's a right. real super vulnerable guy who can't go out into the world and do certain things and um even in comedian he was he took that guy and just made him rich and famous and the loneliness associated with that but it's usually he's he's tracking a a really vulnerable not physical um kind of psychology i think right freaks and geeks i guess that's right and then and then there's a a a buddy aspect to his movie he's not doing scorsese material right he's doing a specific type of guy there's a buddy aspect to his movies but i guess in crashing the 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 buddy aspect happens kind of almost episode by episode yeah yeah, exactly and there's tj miller and sarah silverman uh you to an extent yeah that's more of a conflict relationship but you still sort of have mutual respect for each other um so how did you did he approach you like that's a no, pretty Judd, big deal i've met you know i know judd from the clubs but i don't uh i went in an audition for the role initially i i didn't i didn't even want the audition because it was just so broad it was like it was too, when i got the audition it was we're seeing all ethnicities all people it's like oh there's a hundred people going out for this this role and um I don't know. I forget what it was, but anyway, I ended up going in. I made the the, the hike to Greenpoint to go, you know. And then I just I went in and read and with Pete, and I stood up and I worked it out. And they said, "Yeah, that's the guy." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I knew that guy. I mean, I I I I knew who, who my idea of that guy was, and I thought I could, you know, I could could do the right thing by that guy. And and um, how do you see? So so working on the show and working with guys like Judd and, and yeah. Pete, but but I'm thinking particularly Judd here. How yeah. do you see, how does someone like that bring out the best in you as a as They a just producer? let you do your thing, you know? You, you, the parameters are looser, right? So on a drama, it's more specific. So, you know, it's more traditional kind of screen acting in that you have to... Um, that the, the, the logistics are very important, right? So the, you, you have a mark that you, your line has to land on a certain mark if there's an action if you're turning you're drinking a glass of water you have to know when you drank that water and there are there's continuity in what judge's doing as well it's just there's more space to play and so a lot of that stuff comes in you improv a lot you do alts alt alt so you'll run the scene and then there'll be a part of it that you land on and then you you'll pitch your own stuff you know, they let you play with your own ideas so if i have a line you know, there's one scene where I yell, I'm angry with this couple walking on the sidewalk and I yell, I hope you have to, I hope you two have kids and you have to deal with all of the associated responsibilities, something like that as a, as a, as an insult. Um, that was just something I yelled while I'm running, while they're running away on the sidewalk and they kept it cause it worked. Um, so that's what he does. He, there's a lot of spontaneity in what he does, which makes it different from other things. You know? And you're coming back on the next season. 
I would imagine, you know, I just did a panel, a New Yorker panel with Pete about all that stuff. And so I've been on the first two seasons. So I would imagine if it's still set in the village and all, but you know, they, oh, they, they just start, let you they know. Haven't yet, no, you know. They haven't even started airing the second season yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, don't I, I don't know what they're doing with the third. And I don't know that they've been ordered for a third. I imagine though, yeah. uh, like, well, I guess everybody, no matter how, one thing that always astonishes me with TV is no matter how much success and no matter how high you are. Yeah, nobody cares. Yeah, you can always After get all. canceled at the last nah, minute. Nah, nah, this whole star bullshit, this is why perception is so much different from reality. If you were running business model comparisons, you know, it's like, and I've worked with, I don't want to name them, but, um, I don't know, you know, are we trying to finance a movie with Renee Zellweger? You know, like some people that were were big stars at certain points. So a star, one, how are we defining it, right? Is it is it just somebody who's really talented? Um, is it somebody who can sell tickets? Because if you're a movie star, meaning your name can really influence whether or not a film gets made, uh, a film with a very substantial budget, there's about seven movie stars on the planet, you know, it's like, and then when those, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, it's a start isn't a thing almost. It's like, particularly it, in today's world where I think yeah, there's so right. many, I, I mean, now with, with 8,000 channels and yeah. all these, this different totally. thing. So everybody's got their own favorite little niche and, and yeah. they kind of stick in that, in that ghetto. Yes, you can move more tickets on the road in terms of live gate than you can uh, with a podcast than you can with the average role on a television show. Mm. You know, if you're Seinfeld of Seinfeld and it catches fire, that's a different story. But in general, yeah, you, you, it's the personal connection. And so now the marketing scenario is, is to be more specific as opposed to more broad. For a while, you know, the television... It's, I think, the rise of in cable, um, whether it's subscription or viewership, has correlated with the rise of, like, Louis runs a very specific, his name is brought up a lot because he's a very influential figure in comedy now, but it's a relatively small viewership in terms of the show, right? It's a groundbreaking show, but... How many viewers does the show have? I don't know. I remember a showrunner telling me it's, it was in the neighborhood of 700,000 then when we were talking about it. I, I don't was know. Still, that was like five years ago was the last season of it. Exactly. It's, it's actually, it's actually right. like I, I, I rewatched the series quite a bit, but it's actually been yeah. a long time since there's been a season. It has. It has. And it was never a, it was never a CBS, NBC, you know... Seinfeld yes, was going to get pulled too. I mean, Seinfeld for the first, you know, season. I mean, in today's environment, in terms of today's business model, you know, Seinfeld would have been yanked in the first season. Yeah, and and you mentioned Freaks and Geeks, Judd Apatow's first. Yeah, TV I never show. saw it, but yeah. that didn't even um, last the entire season. I yeah. think there was there's twelve episodes ordered. And yeah. I think they ran eleven. Right, that's like the show I was on on NBC, where I yeah yeah with Jeff Goldblum. They ordered twelve and we shot nine, something like that. So so. They'll yank it any time. They'll yank it in the middle of the season. Uh, every star name, whatever that means in today's context, um, has been has had their show canceled. Most, if you think of most big, this is funny. Working with um, Bruce Helford, who um, created a what did he create? It was the he created the George Lopez show. He ran. He was the showrunner on Roseanne when it was really really hot. Um, and he said it's uh, almost never. 
do you, are you able to come back and make another hit? So think of any television star and whether or not they've all had their own development deal after that show went off the air. Everybody from Seinfeld, everybody that she's an example of an exception. The the Louise Dreyfus from Seinfeld. Right. Although she had several before Veep, yes, which was a hit. Several she canceled. Had several canceled yeah. shows. Right. And um, and even George Grant. And you're talking about the, the most famous show of all time with the exception of a few other enormous shows, right? So outside of the uh, psychologist character on Cheers. Um, yeah, Frazier. Everybody, every actor that you've ever seen on it, from the people from Friends, the people from whatever big show, they almost never have another hit again. They're almost never another star in that capacity. They don't recreate that ever. Um, with with very very few exceptions, and so that's the environment we're dealing with. And Although so, it's interesting because I guess in movies that's not always the case. Like take a guy like Robert De Niro, yes, where his just raw talent shines. Reinvent yourself, movie. your book. He's reinvented him. I mean, he's yeah. been able to, to to ride that, you know. As, well, and actually, he's a very comedic actor. Right, that's what I mean. He's been able to do other things, and and he's and he's a really interesting guy to watch, and he is a, a real exception to to the rule, but. Uh, in movies, that's interesting. In movies, they, um, it's a different scenario. You're watching an actor, but they, they're they rarely able to build a series around a character so you can do it again. And sometimes, whether it's Entourage or Friends, or a lot of times, you, mean, you almost never see them again. Yeah. Let alone in their own series, you know. And then every now and then, they'll go on to George Clooney was a guy character. You know, every now and then, there are plenty of exceptions to every rule. But as a rule... You better understand something about money, you know, and how to how to hold on to it, how to work with it, what you're going to do with it. Because if you think that shit's going to last, think again. I mean, that was always my problem. Like I had my first yeah. company, I made money, yeah, and lost it all. Sure. And then I thought, oh, that is just yeah. it. Like I had my one shot. Yeah. And yeah. that must have happened to a lot of people, like everybody. Know, these stars and, and oh my god, Robert Downey Jr. is in financial trouble, right? I mean, you hear all these stories. Somebody's always in financial trouble, no matter how much money they've made, right? I mean, you know, you 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 have an, an economics mind. You, you know, you can blow anything uh, if you f if if depending on what you do with it or whether or not you're watching it. So like, so so, so yeah. this brings me to the to the book. Yeah. So, so Road Dog. A lot of comics, even comics we haven't heard of or barely even think of, right. actually have enormous success going on the road and doing. And doing Some of them have, if success you mean money, yes, they they'll make. Um, they can make. Yeah, there are guys that make many millions of dollars that you haven't heard of. That they play to their own audience. I mean, I don't know if the average person knows who Bill Burr is. You know, who sold out the Garden. It's like. Um, and that goes for a number of people, but, um, there's a gay big lacy is there are a number of guys out there that do very well. Um, I'll even, I'll even take a know. step down from, I, I, I shouldn't say step down, but I'll go to uh, look at it in a different way from Bill Burr, right. who's highly respected among yeah, comedians. comedians, but like, let's take Carrot Top probably makes millions a year. Oh yeah, absolutely. But people don't really think of him as a comedian, but certainly He's a comedic act, yes, and he makes many, many. Yeah, I mean, and and so you went on the road. Why'd you go on the road? Oh, to uh, well, to build an hour, to be a real, you know, to be a comedian. So you thought you needed to learn. You you thought you needed. You couldn't just do the clubs here in New York City. I mean, no, I wanted to be a headliner. I wanted to be a headliner, and and also I can make a living for the most part as a headliner, and so then that gives me an option to go out and headline. 
Um, what? Why? Like being yeah. being a fifteen minute guy at the you know, cellar? yeah. There's a vast difference in what you can make money wise. If you want to make money, you have to leave New York City and you have to go headline because that's the only place they're going to pay you. In New York City, that's where all the guys are coming to play. So you, you nobody pays much money in New right. York City. And LA is the same way. They're called showcase clubs where you'll have five, six acts on at the Comedy Cellar, and it they're all headliners usually, and they're just doing 15 minutes and they get off and somebody else comes on and that's what makes it an interesting place to go a number of new york city clubs also on the upper west side your club yeah stand up new york stand up new york yes uh, how come, when you showcase come, when you come back to stand up shoot me an email tell me all when right. i'll come by all right good i'll come um by. so okay so you let's say you're you're one of these guys who's 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 past the cellar which is yeah uh the, the, the best club in new york and uh now you call up your 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 booking agent calls up Syracuse, you got to get an agent. Yeah, Syracuse, yeah, yeah. And um, he says, Dove's available. Yeah. Uh, they, they then hire you. How does it work? Yeah, well, it all depends on the market and whether or not they think they can sell you, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's, sometimes you need to have a number of credits. Sometimes it's, you need to have a bit of a following or something they can sell. So, um, uh, so I, I mean, that's how that kind of works. It's like, this guy's been on this, 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 and this. You know, he's, and, and they know that they'll have a good product when they come there. And so, um, and then some guys had, you know, Mark Maron talks about how he couldn't, you know, really get booked as a headliner out there for whatever region. And he had plenty of credits, but he's a specific kind of act. So he had to really find his people. Um, and we all want that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I was relatively fortunate in that regard. You know, I was, I got, I had a kind of a, I've been headlining for a long time and um and i can reliably get x amount of gigs per year i go into you know denver comedy we're good clubs eight clubs all over the country and then um i'll go in and out and so when you're working on an hour when you, an hour special if you want to sell your, your hour special to comedy central whoever the buyer is it's hard to work that stuff out in 15 minute clips at a new york city comedy club you know, and so you go out on the because, road because you don't have the time. Yeah, so time. the audience is always new, right? Yeah. They're going to the comedy cellar because they're tourists in New York. They heard this was the club to go to. Yeah, they wait online for tickets. They go. Well, it's not about that club. Any club in New York, they're all they're all showcase clubs. Meaning you're right. doing 15 minute spots. You're doing and, 15, and, 20 minutes. And so, to some extent, the format it's not people. And I think people don't fully understand this. It's not like 15 minutes worth of jokes versus 45 minutes worth of jokes. You have to right. spend. Like if you have a, if you have forty five if you have forty minutes, it's an entirely different structure in the sense that you can spend more time building up likability, which buys you the ability to do buys a, you a time, and you got to sustain interest over the course of an hour as opposed to spitting fifteen minutes worth of jokes. It's a different muscle. It's a marathon relative to a sprint. Yeah, so you're not you're not trying to like push out laughs every fifteen different seconds. Different pacing often. Time to build a relationship with the audience. You build a rapport, a relationship. Yeah. How do you build that rapport with the audience? Because I think that's important for everything. But you know, here's yeah. here's what I find that's interesting. A lot of correlates. So 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 I have done a lot of public speaking for yes. twenty years, and now this past year I've been doing a lot of stand up. Public speaking does not help stand up at all. Like right. there's zero help right. that it's done. Maybe a tiny bit that I'm not aware of, but right. it really doesn't help. Stand up helps public speaking enormously, right? Because there's all these extra, there's like a, an extra 100 skills required to be yes. good at stand up, yes, that, that you're not even really aware of in public speaking until you start doing them, yes. And so, having those 40 minutes allows you to, to 
kind of build these more subtle skills, I would imagine, it in does. comedy yeah. that are very difficult, like 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 ability, yeah. Yeah. Uh, building that rapport. But how do how do you build the rapport with the audience? It's a good question. I mean, I think initially you got to be it's funny. It, once you you've sold them on the idea that you'll be able to create laughter, they'll give you a little bit of leeway. But if they don't, but if they don't like you, they're not going to laugh, even if it's funny. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, like, but you, you, that's a trap too, because likability can impede your voice. If you're trying to be likable, then it's difficult to just be honest. You got to find a way to connect with them. It, it's a, it's an odd, it's a paradoxical thing because my, I don't get on stage and I'm not trying to be likable. I mean, but, I want to be open. Admitting your faults, though, admit being fragile, right. as you said earlier. Right that's going to be likable because everyone's going to relate to it at least deep down. You're earning it through your own voice, but it would be a mistake to go on and just with an idea of I'm going to smile a lot um, and compliment people. There's something hacky about that like unless it's your real voice. It's pandering. And so there's a, there's, it's a line. It's it's all a tightrope. It's all a line in between the thing, you know. I mean, let's let's look at a, a comic for a second that's that's very different from you. Someone like an Anthony Jeselnik. So he goes yeah. out there, and it's very um, written material, very written jokes. That's his voice, his yeah, thing, and, and his 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 personality is not even necessarily his stage personality. I don't know him well, but yeah. So so I don't know him at all either. Yeah. But uh, but he but he does, and and he's insulting the audience, right. in, in a lot of parts. But because he's kind of smiling and plays that persona, it yeah, Don becomes, Rickles is a good example of mm. somebody who's able to insult, 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 and that's why they're coming to see him. Mm. You know, it's like that's his voice. He's not trying to be like, but he is likable, <laughs> and then maybe that's what allows him to sell the insult. Yeah, you have to be able to be likable to sell the insult. Yeah, Louis is not a particularly likable guy. Nobody, Louis doesn't get on stage and then everybody goes, "This guy's really likable." You know, although although when he was he's vulnerable and he's yeah, honest. when he was quote unquote finding his voice, you yeah. know, let's say in the mid oos, he yeah. was going up there and saying, "I'm poor." You know, anyone else here? It's likability you know, just he earned it because he's just honest. Yeah. And so if vulnerability, if vulnerability, I find it likable and it lets me in. And so I try to just be honest about how I'm, what's going on. And I end up really vibing and audiences like me and I work all over the country. Um, but I'm not trying to be likable. I'm really just trying, same when I walk into a room, I'm looking to connect, you know? And if that connection serves my likability, that's great. But the objective isn't I'm going to smile, wear something nice, and uh, and be affable. You know, like that's more of an affectation as opposed to I, I feel like, yeah. What's 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 the worst experience you've had in terms of not connecting? Because a lot of those people that smile and are really good at being likable aren't the best people. Mm -hmm. For me, the best people, I don't know. I mean, those are it's tricky because there are so many exceptions. People that I like to be around are people that are being themselves and if we find common sort of connections then we can create relationship you know and 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 uh i have and and produce an experience that feels worthy of having as opposed to one that is um you know just more more surface effect producing an experience that is worth having and yeah. i think that's where you start to border from let's say comedy or anything into artistry yeah. Is you're creating an experience with the audience. Yeah. And that is is unique and individual. It's like a canvas yeah. you're painting on. And yeah. so so what does 
what does that mean? Because that's going to be unique to every audience. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just, I can imagine a lot of comics just do the road thinking they can get easy laughs in Indianapolis because they yeah. know how to do it in New York. So it's going to be not necessarily easier to in Indianapolis, degree, yeah. but it's a, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different type of humor. Yeah, the expectations can, can be a bit lower some places and you can sell hack more easily other places, just like you can sell not good food. And Louis C.K. specifically said those comedians will cap their careers because yeah. that's the f furthest they totally. can get. Yeah, because you're going to be a... There are people who do the road and then there are road guys. If you want to be a, if you want to be a headliner, you always have to go work the road. Seinfeld's still working the road. He's doing it in a theater. You get there on a private jet or whatever. It's still the fucking road. You still go in. You stay somewhere else. Because he loves it. Because he's addicted road. to it. That's how he feels alive. You yeah. know, and um, yeah, and so uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to, yeah, I mean, you got to have some mental horsepower. I think I don't know anybody who's writing good jokes that doesn't that isn't doesn't think reasonably well. And I think that's what caps a lot of people. But. Also, it's um, you got to be willing to go to certain places and try to keep, um, if not keep evolving. I don't know. I mean, was prior keep like who keep? Is Woody Allen continuing to evolve? I mean, if that were the case, the you know his movies at eighty would be better than they were at, at forty two, and they're not. Um, but you think that's depressing, Tim? Death, yeah. That's why he makes movies mm. to keep him from thinking about uh, our inevitable demise. It's uh, Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death. That's a big but, influential book. But do you think um, the fact that his movies are not as good now as they yeah. were when he was making Manhattan? Yeah, I don't know. I think he tries not to think about it, and he makes one a year, right? It's like he's still clearly capable of doing. He's still he's still more talented than everybody else on the planet. I mean, um. You, you know with the exception of very few i would imagine i mean and certainly overall is like but yeah i would imagine right i mean if you made annie hall and crimes and misdemeanors and then you make something that seems a bit goofy you know it's like you can't pry i mean unless you're out of touch <laughs> so so when you go out now and let's say you don't do as well yeah does it get depressing or you well, what are the, blow it, it, off? it would all be about the circumstances if i'm working some what what would depress you well, uh, it's a good question. If I didn't do the right thing by them, by the audience, if I'm not in it mentally for whatever reason, if I took a gig and one time I literally, I, I was I was sick and I couldn't get words out at times and fucked up the rhythm and the time and, and I felt bad. I was like, oh God, I felt bad that people paid for a babysitter to come out and do whatever. But, um, but sometimes there are circumstances I worked I went to do that gig. It's called Rock on the Range. It's a big, big, it's like one of the big national metal festivals. It's in Ohio on a stadium. It's like 40 or 50,000 people. Mm. And I was just working, there was a little venue, like a, a thousand person venue, um, little relative to that um, on the side. It was like a comedy venue. So they'll have different venues. They'll have the main stage where Metallica comes to play and then they'll have the other stages. Um, but I got there the day that Chris Cornell killed himself, right? So they were supposed to headline. Cornell's band, Soundgarden, they were supposed to headline. And so anyway, people end up in this comedy venue and there's a fucking mosh pit 200 feet away and you can hear the music is banging. And then I go up and it's like, I think I did okay. I mean, I could barely hear and I had to holler the material. And it's like, the circumstances were almost impossible. I don't feel bad about that. As long as I do my best. You know, if if the people couldn't hear, they weren't into it because this guy just killed himself and there's a mosh pit 200 feet away. I'm not blaming me, right. you know? So what's the time when you have felt bad? What's the worst? 
worst. Um, I once, I felt bad the next day when I passed out on stage. I was in <laughs> South Carolina and North Carolina, one of the Carolinas, and uh, this fucking guy. I have never been around. Uh, I haven't really been around pills. I'm not very experienced with pills, oxy, not oxy, or um, Xanax. I, f- I thought they were all painkillers. And this jerk off, I'd like to find this motherfucker. But this guy, uh, I, I was drinking, I was sipping vodka. And um, anyway, I, I had, I had when I had a knee surgery, I had some pain. Long story short, there were, um, I had taken like a, I don't know if it was a Valium or whatever one time. And I thought, oh, this feels nice. And the guy tells me he's got these Xanax. And I said, um, oh, yeah. And in my mind, I, I should have done some more due diligence. It's my fault, ultimately, of course. But the guy clearly knew I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I said, what are they? And he goes, ah, it's just these little bars. He goes, I got Zanny bars, he called them. So I'm sipping on a drink. My throat's jammed up. I have a headache. He goes, you want one of these? And I was like, I don't know. And then he goes, yeah, here, have a bar. Little did I know, a bar is very powerful, apparently. Um, I took the bar, half, less than half, 20 minutes into my act, uh, the room began spinning a bit. And then, um, you know, I'm headlining. It was the full room on Saturday night. It must How been many minutes were you supposed to do? 50, 50, 55 minutes. And then um, I hit the ground at about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I blacked out. I didn't get back up. First time ever I'd done that. First time, I, you know, that's the first and only time that will ever happen to me, I would imagine. But... I didn't know what I had taken the next day. I said that I was so fucking stupid for just taking that because that guy offered it to me without knowing what it was that I was taking. But he was a fan and he was a nice guy. And I assumed, I, I made it clear that I didn't know what they were. And uh, and he still said, oh, sure, it's a good time, that kind of thing. Like that you could almost see somebody coming onto a 13-year-old. And I'm, I'm, I'm relatively worldly, if nothing else. And the idea that that happened to me, the, the level of naivete kind of I, I experienced and stupidity and irresponsibility, I guess. Admittedly, it was under your control and that you shouldn't have taken a substance. You didn't know what it was. So yeah. whatever. But... What's I let the a, audience down. I let everybody down. So you let them down yeah. and you're disappointed in yourself. Yeah. What's a time when you were trying hard and you were on your best and you right. let the audience down and uh, and, and, oh, and that's you didn't a good expect question. it? It's a good question. Ah, fuck. I don't know, man. I can't think of too many situations. At this point in my life, like early on, it's an obstacle course of insecurity and... Um, feeling horrible and what am I doing with my life and all of that. It's like, um, you know, I mean, I write about it in the book, but when I used to try to get, I was trying to get stage time and it's really difficult to get stage time early on. Nobody wants you until somebody wants you. And then uh, I was, there was a Puerto Rican show that took place after midnight in this real shithole comedy room. And um, anyway, it was, it was all Puerto Rican. Anyway, I changed my name to Dove Dominguez, just for Tuesday nights, you know, just to get those seven minutes of stage time. And so that kind of thing, you walk away going, this is funny, but weird. And the crowd was drunk and sometimes there were six people in it and it was sucked and you walk away feeling bad, but I didn't. So there was then, but you felt bad for different reasons. You felt depressed and you don't know what's going on and there's no clear line. Nobody gives you a degree. You're still learning what to do. You're still learning what to do. And so- I think people don't realize 
that, and this is true for every area of life, you got to go through whether it's one year, five years, yeah. ten years. There's this whole period where you love yeah. something, but you don't know what to do. Yeah. And the customers or the audience or whoever right. is going to call you on it right. again and again, and you have to push right. through it. You can't give up. Right. That's right. Like, why didn't you give up? I because I couldn't. I I I I uh, because it, it it's dangerous to tell people not to. I heard you on a podcast talking talk about sort of what to do with when to pull out of something knowing when to stop doing something and um you made a really good point and it was really articulate and i'm not going to try to recreate it but i felt that i had the talent and i knew it deeply enough that i thought if i can go through this you know then you contextualize the experience there are people that it's not f like I've seen people doing whatever. Like there's somebody that's clearly hoping against hope. Weird expression. I don't know the etymology of it where, or where it comes from. But the um, like if you if you meant if you speak that language, you know, everybody has a story where it it didn't go well many 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 times. That's the learning curve, you know. But um, but if you feel like it makes sense and it's a language that not only are you interested in learning to speak but it's a language that you have an ability to speak you know it's going to take a while to pick up the language and the nuances but but if you believe that you'll get there you know but you gotta have that that belief has to be grounded in something otherwise we're sending people out with these fucking overly positive messages it's like when somebody goes you can do whatever you want no you can't no, you can't. There are physical limitations. There are mental limitations. I don't care how interested I am in physics. I could not do, I could not be a physicist. I don't, I'm a little dyslexic. I don't have that kind. Math jams me up in certain areas. I, I'm, you know, um, but, you know, I mean, physics is hard for anybody, even if you're good at math. And you had, you had some evidence early on that people were laughing at yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm funny. I have talent. I, I know, I, I knew I had talent. Uh, and, and you loved um, it. And I liked doing it. And it meant something to me. Beyond loving it, it was something I needed to do to reconcile this fucking weird life I lived. It, it, I didn't know how else to create uh, meaning that would exceed the meaning I was creating at that time doing that. You know, and and yeah, like I, yeah, and getting laid and all that—that's fun too. But if you're just doing it for that, you're gonna burn out. I mean, you can't continue to do it for that. You know, uh, you know that nightlife. So, 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 what's next for you now? Like now, I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a real estate developer right now. Uh, in part, I'm developing shades of blue and in crashing. <laughs> yeah, but the, the thing about TV shows is that unless you're one or two on the call sheet, meaning unless you have a ton of stuff to do, they don't require that much time. It's this thing of being an actor. It's every actor should be learning something else and doing something else for the most part because one, you're depending on something that isn't self-deterministic and two, it doesn't usually require that much time. If you're Matt Damon, you're pretty booked up. If you're almost everybody else, tons of downtime. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's... um. But I need to, that in your book, reinventing yourself, meaning whether or not you go and do something else isn't really the point. The idea of always thinking about something new to be engaged in or reinventing whatever it was that you were already doing, you know, it's like, um, so I'll go and I can, I can pitch projects. I'll go out and think of another television idea. Uh, I just had a good pitch that we shot a sizzle reel for, um, 
and a, like a, when you say sizzle reel, is that like a, a sizzle reel? reel for a pitch? A sizzle reel is an actual reel that you would watch. It's ten minutes long, roughly, and it and it you get to see a piece of what you're asking the network to produce. So I come in, I say, here's my idea. I'm going to make a show about my family doing this, doing that. Here's what I do in the show. I'm a corporate executive or a garbage man, whatever the fuck you are. You pitch the idea. You show them something that you shot. And that communicates some proof of concept and you hope to get an order or at least a, a pilot order out of a network, mm. uh, a distributor. Um, so that's one area. And then you go out on the road and then you do stand up, and then um, I'll go and audition for more television shows and, and, and films if they have them. Although it's funny, there aren't that many auditions. That's why it's a such a bad business. That's why it, it's a... Because the the numbers are horrendous um, in terms of the viability of any one project, so you have to um, mitigate that through um, optionality. Um, Some optionality meaning you give your, you're trying many things. Yes, and you're well, not just trying TV. Man, not not just many things like you're throwing shit up against a wall. If you're a really good stand up and you think you can be a good actor and you're working on that, you believe that you can book roles in a professional capacity and get paid well to do it, then maybe spend some more time approaching auditions seriously or doing some other types of work um, to try to generate that kind of you know opportunity or income. You know, it's you don't start you know in fields where you know you're not genuinely interested you you're, you're trying to find ways to plumb you know whatever it's like most artists do this right it's like if you look at an actor they want range nobody wants to get locked into playing the same character if they're real actors they're looking to go out and do other stuff you know it's like um within that world or they'll want to try to write something or try to direct something or it's all the same thing you know well, and and your life's an excellent example. You you obviously been, you do stand up. You go on the road and do stand up. Yeah, yeah. You're an actor in a bunch of different projects. You're doing yeah. real estate. And I've been all of these things to some degree for 20 years. But I try to reinvent wherever I'm at to some degree. In that, if I can get job in drama, like I enjoy doing drama. I'd like to do more of that. I mean, I like and also comedy and also that. So, in a business where probability is so low, the more you can do the more you increase the probability that something works. Particularly if you've spent the year, putting in the years of developing the talent, yeah. the skills, the credits. And the relationship so even with representatives, you know, an right. agent that's going to go get on the phone and go, I want you to see this guy, he's really good. Mm -hmm. To get somebody with a reputation to do that it can be challenging. So, and of course, your latest development, which is this book, yeah. Road Dog. Right, Road Dog comes out Life October 31st. Life from the Road as a stand-up comic. Yeah. Dove Davidoff. Yeah. And the thing I like about this is just, you know, Colin Quinn called it one of the one of the one of the funniest and most personal books he'd he'd ever read. Um, Ray Liotta has a quote on the back. Well, no, this is just the, the galley. There's lots of quotes on the on the actual book, the one that comes out. And uh, and this kind of shows what what it's like uh, to go on the road uh, yeah, as a comic yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and the skills that you build and and yeah. uh, interweaving that with your relationships. Yeah, I like. Uh, it's definitely a lot of stories in between relationships that are pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, and it's all related. You know, it's all part of that that milieu. The idea of being on the road is inextricably linked to where you come from personally. You know, yeah. and your experience of the road. Yeah. 
So I, I, I enjoyed it and uh, I highly recommend people read it. And I am going to uh, talk to you about coming back to Stand Up New York. And let's do it. Let's come, let's come back up. Let's be, we'll, we'll we got, we got make Dan some time back so we there. get to talk. Yes, with the great Dan Adam and the one, the only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dove, yeah, thanks, uh, for James. joining us. Yes. Road Dog. Yes. Road Dog. Thanks. Thanks, James. Next time on the James Altucher Show. In law school, a teacher would be like, oh, so um, what kind of law do you want to practice? And I would say, boldface in the class, I'm going to be a comedian. <laughs> I told this to the Solicitor General of Illinois, all this stuff. And there I kind of felt people pull back. And that's when I felt the shame. Like, what am I really doing? What if this doesn't work out? It's almost like you have to break out of the matrix to kind of say, okay, I just spent... 12 years in grade school, four years in college, three years in law school, all for this one goal to become a lawyer and society approves yep. and you broke out of the shackles. There must have been this enormous psychological dissonance at that moment. Well, at first I kind of felt like a fraud because I would tell people I want to be a comedian, but I knew I sucked. And so like, you know, I'm telling my parents, I'm telling all these people I'm going to be a comedian and I was bad. And that's what kind of tortured me more than anything. So why did you decide not to be a lawyer and go for stand-up comedy? At the end of the day, what I'm pursuing is like trying to be my own fan. You know, I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I would say doing a podcast is the activity that I've enjoyed most in these past few years. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast. It will only take a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And it will really show people in general that this is a quality show and that it's worth listening to. You can also check out the show notes at jamesaltature.com slash podcast. And also, if you want to get my blog updates and other updates that I do, sign up for the newsletter at jamesaltature.com. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys.